One of the things that music does is it gives us an opportunity to mark time, remember where we were, how old we were, what we were doing, the types of changes that we went through. Uh, it's, a, it's a part of the human makeup. Uh, poetry, art, music, video, film for us today. It's one of the kinds of things that the Psalms stir up. And uh, to get us the ice broken a bit, I wanted to do that not for any great memory purpose, but just to remind ourselves that music is a huge part of our life. And even if it's, there wasn't one Christian song up there, I'll admit, the Grammy's not given out a lot of Christian songs for best record of the year, but nonetheless, we're familiar with that type of music and over the years have, have learned to recognize how different styles of music come along, and you have the same thing in the Psalms. We've got different kinds of expressions throughout the Psalms, from laments, as we heard some sad songs, to some expressions of of happiness and confidence in the Lord. Um, Nothing's different. As as David's son Solomon will say, there's nothing new under the sun. We're still um, embracing the things that make up uh, the human life, and music is a part of that. So that's one of the things that we're trying to accomplish, and we're uh, going to look at uh, some more structure tonight in Psalm 2. And as we continue next week or in two weeks, we'll take a look at uh, a really uh, downer kind of psalm known as a lament psalm in Psalm 63, and then a little bit more uh, comfortable psalm that we have grown to know and love over the years, obviously Psalm 50 or 23. And then we're going to sort of do a, a crescendo of, of different types of psalms, often not discussed um, but we're going to show you the function of these songs uh, in the hymnal, the divine hymnal, and how it was used uh, by the people of God in the Old Testament, and how, as according to uh, Paul in Ephesians 5, that uh, those that are filled with the Spirit want to be about the business of uh, singing and making melody in our hearts with psalms, spiritual psalms, spiritual songs, and hymns. So we're going to take a look at these psalms of ascent as they ascended up to Jerusalem uh, take a look at a section of scripture which culminated in the Passover um, literature that was used and, and the hymns that were sung on Passover, Psalms 113 through 118. Uh, the final uh, psalm of them all that, that sort of draws it all together, Psalm 150. Uh, and then we're going to have some opportunity uh, to praise and worship that evening. But um, let's go ahead and, and, and get out our Bibles and take a look at Psalm chapter 2 uh, because uh, we're going to be focusing tonight on uh, a king and his coronation, in particularly uh, King David. Uh, but we're going to see also that, that this psalm would have been used uh, at all coronations of, of all Jewish kings, certainly Davidic kings, and we're going to talk about that. Um, we talked about last time that the Bible assumes you know the Bible, so we're going to see that opportunity again come up tonight, that some of the things that will be referenced in Psalm 2 assume some prior understanding. We'll go back sure and make sure that we get that prior understanding. Uh, but uh, I love this little verse in 1 Samuel 16 as uh, early in, in David's uh, history as he comes on the scene and is anointed. Um, and it says, Behold, I have seen a son of Jesse, uh, the Bethlehemite, who is a skilled musician, a mighty man of valor, a warrior, one prudent in speech, a handsome man, and the Lord is with him. Um, that's the sort of the snapshot of King David, of David at this point until he's anointed very early in his life and we'll go through about an 18, 15 to 18 year period from the time that he is anointed king until he actually is enthroned. Uh, And he most likely wrote this psalm for the coronation of his son uh, Solomon, as we'll see that unfold, but a a few things that are important uh, and to show the connectivity of the Bible, go ahead and let's flip over to these two chapters in Acts. I want to show you, actually let's hold off on that because we're going to do a lot, a lot of flipping here in just a minute. These, but these two will show up a bunch as well as two in Hebrews and we'll just knock them all out uh, at the same time. We're going to see that David's life uh, is frankly a difficult life to, uh, to get a good chronology on. First uh, and Second Samuel as well as Chronicles, which Chronicles focuses more on the southern kingdom Judah, which was David's. The chronologies are hard to get out. Uh, we have to do some some things with secular history because a lot of people outside the scripture uh, as well as the Bible itself will support that Solomon uh, began the, uh, the, the temple in 966 B.C. in his fourth year. And so we can kind of back into other dates and then there's, there's ways to, to do that. And, and, and it, it's fun to try to figure it out, but it's particularly hard uh, to get very precise with David. But this is probably close enough. Uh, born in 
in 141 B.C., anointed king somewhere between 12 and 15. He's called a nahar, which is a youth, a young lad in Hebrew thought. We would say junior high today, maybe youth. He's enthroned, and clearly we know this, to be over all of Judah. And when he was 30, his first seven years of his kingship will not be in Jerusalem. It would be at Hebron. Uh, the place, uh, the cave of Machpelah there where Abram uh, is buried and others. And then after seven and a half years, he moves to Jerusalem, conquers it, and then brings the ark up. And if you've read that passage in 2 Samuel 6, for example, he brings the ark up and dances before the Lord. Uh, And you get a full glimmer of David, as this previous section just saw, uh, the fullness of the breath of the man, a, a skillful musician, a mighty man of valor, a warrior, prudent in speech, and handsome man, and the Lord was with him. And so that's, uh, of course, um, indicative of the fame that he enjoys and is the author of almost half the Psalms. And so to get to know the person David, I think it's important to see how he uh, kind of thinks and ticks and some of the things that went on in his life. Not a perfect man by any stretch, um, One of the things I love most about the scripture is it includes some things that, frankly, if I was trying to make God and his people look good, I wouldn't have included them. Uh, But God's, that's not his intention. His intention is to be a teller of truth. And so we have a man after God's own heart also being convicted of uh, blood guiltiness in the scripture. We would call it conspiracy conspiracy to commit murder as well as adultery. Uh, He is sentenced at the end of his life that the, uh, the sword will never depart from him. Uh, because of his sin with Bathsheba. Um, So he knows the grace of God, the mercy of God, and also uh, the severity of God. Paul will make a similar statement in Romans. Behold, the kindness and severity of the Lord. David, among all the folks in the scriptures, probably is one of the best to, to see the whole human experience through. We may not be exactly like him as described, but he sort of incorporates, encapsulates all the things that individuals have gone through and thus becomes a guy that you can sort of say, I'm like that fellow. I I can see myself in him a little. I can see where he's a very real guy. Um, Last time we looked at a wisdom psalm. This is a royal psalm to be uh, used primarily at coronations or at other key times. And royal psalms, uh, there are not that many of them, but they focus on key events in the lives of a king. It's sort of a little snapshot into what king life was like. And we're going to have to put on our monarch and our king kind of hats tonight because um, we're not, certainly as Americans, aren't familiar with this form of governance. governance. The the best way to remember it might be to remember your old French and English history and and, and kings and all the castle intrigue that was going on and how uh, sons of the previous king might be murdered because they would not, the next king would not want them coming up and being a rival king to them. That's a beautiful backdrop, by the way, uh, to Saul's uh, greater son, Mephibosheth, uh, his grandson, and yet David allowed him to sit uh, at his table and, and express kindness and uh, chesed to him, that loyalty that he had sworn with his father, Jonathan. And that's the background of going, uh, what's going on here is lots of um, intrigue in the castle, lots of desire for power and rule, and we see how David uh, conducts himself. There are 11 of these psalms in total. If you've got that sheet that we passed out last time, one of them is missing. Psalm 132 should be added to the, the royal psalms list. As you see that little classification, and there are more out on the table out there. Uh, it's a helpful tool, that little sheet, and I would recommend that you keep it out because uh, like we just saw all different types of genre of music, all different ways of expressing Uh, God has chosen five major categories of expressing uh, in poetry and psalm, but many derivations within those five major categories as well. Um, The more famous uh, royal psalms will, of course, include Psalm 2, also Psalm 45, as well as Psalm uh, 110. Now let's go ahead and see where Psalm 2 is used because uh, it's like a coming attraction. It's like going to the movie and seeing how uh, what the, the movie's going to be like and the ones that are coming. Let's go ahead and look at Acts 4.25 and 26, and I'd like to get somebody to read that out loud. And then if somebody would queue up Acts 13.33, and if somebody would queue up Hebrews 1.5, and then a fourth, queue up 
Hebrews 5, 5. Just sort of letting you see where this psalm goes uh, as the scripture unfolds, how it's used uh, in the New Testament. It's alluded to in many places, including elsewhere in the Old Testament. But this is direct quotation and also actually gives us some insight. uh, For if you go to Psalm 2 in your Bible, it does not say that David is the author. We do not learn that until one of these passages. And interestingly, uh, we get an insight into how the Psalms were arranged, certainly in the New Testament, early in the early church, because it will actually say that this was the second Psalm. So somebody got Acts 4, 25 through 26 for me. So by the Holy Spirit, through the mouth of our father David, thy servant, did say, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people devise futile things? The kings of the earth took their stand, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. We're going to come back and study that passage a little bit more in context later, but just keep that one in mind. And we're going to come back and ask, what's the larger context of Acts 4, and thus why would he quote Psalm 2, that particular section of Psalm 2 there? How about Acts 13, 33? He has to for us their children by raising up Jesus, as it is written in the second Psalm, You are my son, today I have become your father. Excellent. Okay, we'll look at that context later as well. Act or Hebrews 1 5. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have become your father? Or again, I will be his father, and he will be my son. We won't come back and look at that context, but the, uh, the author of Hebrews is comparing the old covenant to the new. I call it the Mobetta book. It's, it's saying that, this, that Jesus' way is, is better. Uh, than the old way. The old way was good, but Christ's way is better. And he's comparing uh, the approach to God here, in this case, the angels. No angel ever heard those words from Psalm uh, 2 about Hebrews 5, verse 5. So Christ also did not take upon himself the glory of becoming a high priest. But God said to him, You are my son, today I have become your father. In the next verse, we'll talk about that he is a priest, but according to the order of Melchizedek, the, the king and priest united in one person. And so Psalm 2 has some tentacles. As we saw last time, Psalm 1 and 2 serve as the foundation for the whole Psalter, all 150 Psalms. It's the introduction to uh, the book of Psalms. And we saw last week, of course, the wise man and, and the one who's planted and firm as opposed to the, the right or the wicked who are easily moved away. We're going to see at the end these two psalms come together uh, quite nicely. This is a psalm about the coronation of a Davidic king. Now what's important to remember is as Old Testament history unfolds, the kingdom is going to split under Solomon. Uh, and you'll see, and there's another good example, that although David, who lived a, a very righteous life and did many things well, also had some ramifications to his life, his son dropped the ball. His son uh, took on foreign wives and caused the splitting of the kingdom. Ten went north, two stayed south. Ten to the north, Israel, two to the south, Judah. Uh, the, 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 Jewish, the kings that were properly aligned to God, and we're going to see that that's going to be through the Davidic covenant, are going to be the southern kings, known as the Davidic kings. Every one of them uh, are proper. No king in the north was ever considered good as the author of Kings will give an evaluation of each king. Not all kings in the south were considered good in the way they performed, but they were all properly lineaged, if you will. They had the proper genealogy. And so this is the coronation of a properly lineaged king, a Davidic king, in the holy city of Zion. That's a a, a larger term for what was originally Mount Moriah and then was called Zion and then became Jerusalem. It's a high place. It's on a plateau. Uh, David, at the end of 2 Samuel, will purchase a particular portion of that high place, a threshing floor, on which the Temple Mount will later be constructed. And it's it's famous throughout the Scripture. This is the same area in which uh, uh, Isaac was taken uh, and and supposedly sacrificed uh, by his dad in in Genesis 22, a, a, a special piece of ground in God's economy. And so to be God's king... Uh, on that special place is what this psalm is all about and to be uh, coronated uh, accordingly. It was originally written for a coronation but was then included in the collection of psalms to be sung by the Levitical choirs at any appropriate time. And we saw some uh, renditions of them last week of the, the grandeur and glory of 
what Jerusalem would have been like in those three times in which uh, Jewish men were required and often brought their families to come to Jerusalem and, and celebrate uh, the Lord and what he had done. They were certainly done at coronations, but also times of national crises in which you wanted to be reminded that God has installed his king. We get patriotic, especially around the inauguration of a president, and we're sort of reminded symbolically of all the things of our nation. Same with them. Uh, and and when, they, when he sees the installation of their king uh, and the reminder that threats would come, but they would be quieted, they would be held for naught, and the importance of that. Uh, kingdoms were particularly vulnerable, a little different militarily, uh, certainly than we are today, but kingdoms were particularly vulnerable during the, t- the changing over of monarchs. Uh, the surrounding nations and tribes would often encroach into the land, and raid outlying cities, and try to end, in this case, Israel's control over them. Accordingly, one of the first tasks of the new king would be to solidify borders and subjugate enemies, keeping them under Israeli rule. What you'll see here is uh, some, some chatter, some clatter from uh, the rulers who are taking their counsel against the Lord. Uh, you'll see later David not do this. Uh, early in 2 Samuel, that will lead to his time with Bathsheba. He did not go out uh, after winter was over and, and re establish his borders. And he talks about that's what kings did, but he stayed behind. It was during that time he stayed behind where his sin with Bathsheba occurred. Uh, The theology of the psalm is is pretty straightforward. Uh, Yahweh and all those connected to Yahweh will win. Okay, And it's very typical of psalms that are uh, succinct and to the point. They're, they're, They're often meant to just remind us of the most basic facts of life with God. But this this particular psalm will portray Yahweh as the sovereign king of the universe who reigns from heaven, and that's important. He controls the nations. He establishes borders, according to Deuteronomy 32. He sets up and removes kings, and he guarantees the dominion of his anointed king. So we see an interesting partnership with God and his king in Psalm 2 and how that works out and how that partnership is really the way and the key through which God chooses to rule, uh, certainly in that time and that dispensation. If you want to turn to your own Bibles, uh, if not, this is fine, but this is the key background. Uh, This is the Davidic covenant. There are several covenants in the scripture, uh, the Abrahamic covenant sort of being the foundational covenant in Genesis 12. We see certainly the the, the new covenant later, the covenant that we enjoy described in Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 36. Uh, There's a land covenant, it seems, at the end of Deuteronomy. Uh, But there's also a covenant in which God chooses to narrow the lineage through which uh, he will pass the baton to his king and his ultimate king, the king of kings, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we see that in 2 Samuel 7, we'll see that it's not just okay to be from Abraham. We've seen earlier in Genesis that you have to also be from Isaac, and not just from Isaac, but from Jacob. And not just from Jacob, but we're going to see through Judah, and through which we get the word Jew from, and then through the lineage of one of those 12 sons, the person of Judah, we finally get to a descendant of Judah, um, David, and his progeny. And so he's going to narrow it even more from Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, and now to the lineage of David. And that's why the genealogies in Matthew and in Luke both trace Jesus and Mary back to David. They are a proper lineage. They are blue bloods, if you will. And so the the imagery is important here because we're going to have to wrestle through some of the pronouns in this book and figure out who's who's he talking about here. This background, I think, and hope will be helpful. He's speaking to David and he says, When your days are completed and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendants after you who will come from you and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. In immediate context, of course, he's talking about Solomon. David was not allowed to build the house. Solomon will build it. Um, I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. But my loving kindness, my loyal covenantal love for him shall not depart from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne will be established forever. The throne of David and his descendants is what is being promised here in what is known as the Davidic covenant. 
And so to be a proper king, you had to have David uh, as your daddy or granddaddy or, or before. And the importance of that is going to be seen as this psalm unfolds. But also notice, uh, because we're going to have to wrestle through, is he talking about Christ in the psalm? Is he talking about a, a human king? Is he talking about both? Notice a little phrase here. For when, this, when the one who I'm going to raise up, when he commits iniquity, I will correct him. And so we need to keep that in mind in the background as we sort of uh, unlock this psalm a bit. Um, its message, I'm going to argue, will apply to every successive Davidic king. Psalm 2 had to have meaning and purpose when it was originally written. And that's one of the things that is important. When we see a book in the Old Testament quoted so often in the New, we can sometimes fail to remember that book had meaning to those that were alive and, and lived under that code of law at that time. It wasn't just to show the fulfillment in Christ, which is obvious in Acts 4, Acts 13, Hebrews 1, and Hebrews 5. But what did the original audience think about Psalm 2? And I'm going to argue that uh, it would have applied to every Davidic king. And for ultimately what we're going to see, I think, is that all sons of David that are kings, obviously, uh, are sons, or all, all Davidic kings will be referred to as sons. And in a, with a small m, this idea of Messiah. We seem to have uh, restricted that term only to the Lord Jesus Christ. An Old Testament understander would, would never have done that. It, it was a term that was commonly used, uh, and we'll unlock that a bit and see uh, how that fits. And so what we're really setting up is that there are Davidic kings that are going to be properly approved by the Lord, and then there's the king of kings. And so watching both kind of unfold, I think, is going to be the trick to balancing Psalm 2 and understanding it correctly. Certainly the Lord Jesus Christ is a descendant of David, as the Lucan and Matthew genealogies will reveal. And so this psalm is ultimately fulfilled in him. And that's where most kind of interpreters go to. Oh, this is about Christ. But I'm going to ask, okay, well, Christ doesn't come along, you know, for maybe a thousand years later. What about those thousand years in which Psalm 2 was hanging around? What did people think? Did they think it was a precursor for Christ? Or did, have, did it have applicability to those that were living during that time? The point of the psalm is going to be, again, straightforward. The reign of God's king, small k and large k, uh, is assured despite opposition. And one of the things that we saw in Psalm 1, in all wisdom literature, what you'll see often in royal psalms is there is opposition. There are those that don't want you to be king and want to take your kingdom down. And that doesn't matter if you're a small k king or a big K king. We see the, uh, the, the, the gates of Hades attempting to prevail against the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. He assures us that they will not prevail, but that doesn't preclude the fact that there's a battle going on. Uh, Ephesians 6, 10 and following will describe that battle uh, primarily of, of spiritual realm, but in this case also that spiritual realm can manifest itself in real guys with real bullets and real armies and real horses and real arrows, and that, of course, is the type of battles that David would have fought. Uh, so let's just go through this psalm real quick just to make sure that we've got a good handle on it. If you've got to obviously read it uh, in your notebook or directly from your Bible. Um, but just to get familiar again with the psalm uh, and how it flows. Uh, and let me read it for us. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs, and the Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will surely give you I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Now, therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son that he may not become angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. It's, great. It's, it's straightforward. It's obvious. There's some, a cast of characters that we're going to make sure we unlock. And it has excellent progression and flow 
Um, it is primarily an exhortation to those that are coming against the Lord and His anointed. And wherein the psalmist exhorts the pagan nations to abandon their rebellious plans against Yahweh and His anointed King and submit to the authority of the King whom God has ordained to rule the nations and quiet rebellion. This is a psalm about affirmation of the king and his power over the nations uh, that are attempting to to thwart the king and his kingdom. Uh, Like a good play, you get your playbill out, you see who's uh, in the the various scenes, and we've got several characters here. Uh, There are those described as the nations and the peoples. We'll see lots of good parallelism in this psalm, by the way. Hopefully you observe some of that. Uh, The kings of the earth are involved in this as well group called the rulers. And then on the good side, you got the Lord who in, in those capital L-O-R-D in, in your Bible, that's the, the official name of, of the Lord Yahweh uh, and the Lord's anointed. And we're going to see uh, what all that means. We're going to struggle a bit with should a, a pronoun or a word be capitalized or not. And we're going to see lots of disagreement on that in lots of different versions of the Bible. That's where the hard work is going to be. And we're going to have to roll up our sleeves a bit, uh, and come to some conclusions on our own. Um, but we'll get to that. Uh, what we're going to see is, is that there's four major sections uh, to this psalm. The first three verses are going to talk about this, this foolish rebellion of the nations uh, to come against Yahweh and his anointed king. It's going to take three verses to describe uh, their thinking and what they want to do uh, against the Lord and his anointed. Then sort of like a good tennis match, uh, the, the Lord is going to hit back. Uh, and he's going to state resolutely uh, that this is my king, I have installed him, and I stand with him. As we see uh, the resolution of Yahweh uh, to install his king. Again, it's, the, it's a coronation of a king. And we'll see some of the, some of the interesting use of the verbs there to, to describe maybe what's actually going on. There's a third section. Uh, then the king speaks. So we got the rulers out there who want to come against the king and his kingdom. You got the Lord saying, this is my guy. And then the king will speak in the psalm uh, and affirm uh, the, uh, to, to show what is, uh, by what right he rules. He will state that I am ruling uh, by the authority of God Almighty. And so I stand on that alone. And finally, uh, the psalmist uh, will just step back and remind the group in verses 1, 2, and 3, the original um, grieving parties, uh, that they are foolish in this attempt uh, and exhorts the foolish nations to trust God and to submit to His Son. It's straightforward. It's pretty basic. uh, But there's some great beauty in it. I hope to show you some of that. Uh, And if you spend some time really focusing on words. I was uh, just thinking about this the other day, the importance of observation and how, um, you know, the, the lawyers will spend extra time to make sure that every T is crossed and I dotted to make sure that their clients are well taken care of because they're primar- primarily dealing with written documents. The accountants will make sure that the numbers add up and close scrutiny. The, uh, the professors will make sure that their PowerPoints and their words are carefully chosen. That same kind of scrutiny, that same kind of effort uh, affixed to the, the Word of God really reveals some beautiful things that God has has uh, unfolded for us and allows us to really see how he thinks and how he has chosen to communicate. So we get now into the first three verses. Uh, This is, of course, for the nations who foolishly desire to rebel against Yahweh uh, and his anointed king. We can probably predict how things are going to go for them. uh, But one of the things that this psalm reveals is the certainty of this. There are going to be nations and rebels that will come against even the Lord and his anointed. And so to not be dismayed by that is one of the applications of, this, of these first three verses. But let's take a look at some, in some detail of what's going on in the first three verses. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? You grew up in the, the King James. You may remember, why do the heathen rage? And that kind of, that boiling over kind of imagery that he's uh, setting up here. The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers take counsel together against Yahweh and his anointed. And they say, let us tear their fetters apart and cast their cords from us. Let's see how this unlocks. Uh, 
a bit. Notice he uses, he starts the psalm with a particular device known as a rhetorical question. We're familiar with it. He doesn't really want an answer. Uh, But he immediately comes on the scene as if something's wrong here. Why do these guys, what are they doing? It's so obvious that what they're doing is folly. He just asks, asks that question in a way to really evoke amazement and his indignation uh, at this whole scenario. Uh, the word uproar, by the way, and we're going to have some time for some for observation and, and feedback from you in a moment, but I just want to prime the pump just a second. This concept of, of uproar, it's a word picture. Of, uh, and, and really get these two scenes. You're going to have this noisy, tumultuous tribal meeting going on and planning the attack. Yeah, we could get them. Who are they to hold us down? And then the same scene over here is going to be this quiet, sovereign, powerful ruler and his king, his son, uh, handling uh, this little attack. Uh, lastly, we're going to see what they, notice what they do. They're, they're devising. Remember last week we studied the word meditate? Same word. We, t- we sometimes think that words are good or bad. They're not. This is the Hebrew word haggah. The wise man in Psalm 1, the one who's firmly planted, he delights in the Lord and he meditates on it. Remember, it's that word, the concept of depth and growl, moan, and, and, and it was an onomatopoeia, hugga, 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 hugga. Just, you're just thinking about stuff and you're just kind of talking things out loud. That's the same word here. They're going over a matter in their mind. They're, 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 they're pushing it every which way but loose, every corner. Is, uh, is looked at, no stone unturned, thorough, in-depth devising of a plan to come against the Lord uh, and, and, his, and his anointed. Now, let's take a look at, at a few more details. Um, it's a vain thing that they're doing, the Scripture says. Uh, they're devising this thing that will ultimately be vain. Now, to them, it's not. To them, this is some good stuff. Man, we've been, we've been uproaring. Uh, we've been uh, we've been uh, meditating on how to do this. Um, by the way, the the, the verbs uh, both uproar and devising are present tense verbs, and the image might be that even while the king is being coronated, is being enthroned, as as our president would have his hand on the Bible and his other hand up, or however they do it, that plotting is going on. That's the image. These these two scenes. We have the, uh, the advantage of seeing both of them from above. This scene over here of plotters and this scene over here of those that are being plotted against. The, the tenses of the verbs help us see that. Um, they're, ultimately, their plans will have no substance, that idea of, of vanity. It, this is not the same word that, that Solomon will use in Ecclesiastes. This is a word that basically just means nothing. It's empty. You'll come up with all this stuff and it'll be completely empty. Uh, now let's go back to Acts 4, and take a little time at your, um, at your individual groups and your tables, and Acts 4, 25 through 26, it's where it's quoted, but if you want to understand why is Psalm 2, or this portion of Psalm 2, quoted in Acts 4, 25 and 26, you've got to expand your context in Acts 4. So go back and find out what's going on in Acts 4, and then why would that author, Luke in that case, uh, sovereignly through the Spirit of God select this particular verse from Psalm 2 to sort of capture what's going on in Acts 4, and then I want you to feed back to me a little. So spend a little time, talk about it amongst yourself after you've read the larger context of Acts four twenty-five through 26. Okay, if you're Peter and John in Acts 4, what's happened to you? It's been a tough little day for them in, on one, one level. Verse 3 tells us they were in jail for what they had done in the previous chapter. And so that's really going to be the background. You've got some serious opposition to this new thing that has just been birthed in the upper room two chapters prior. In the next chapter in 3, they're going to start preaching. People are, people, in the previous chapter, people think they're drunk. They don't know what's going on. All kind of wild things happening with the, the Spirit. But something's up, and these guys, filled with the Spirit in 4.8, start to speak of Jesus. There's salvation in no one else, no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. One of the most powerful verses in the whole Bible referring to the exclusivity of Christ and His, his salvation. 
then, then it, it talks about, they, then they, it's just almost comical. You, you know, you guys shouldn't spread this any further. They, they warn them in verse 17. They, they summon, tell them, don't speak or teach. And Peter and John pull out another pearl, you know, uh, whether it is, uh, is right in the sight of God to give heed to you. We gotta, we gotta be rather to God. You, you be the judge. We cannot stop speaking what we have seen and heard. What a powerful statement. It threatened them further. They let them go, finding no basis that they should punish them. When they had been released, verse 23, they went to their own companions. So they got a jail story. You know, they're coming back to their buds with what, what, what their, what their time in jail was like and their persecution. Uh, for the Lord was like. And uh, they report all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard this, that is the recipients, the companions, they lifted their voices to God with one accord and said, O Lord, it is thou who didst make the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them, uh, which is a quote from Exodus chapter 20 as well as Psalm 146. So that's what's on their mind. They knew the word uh, so well. Uh, And who by the Holy Spirit, through the mouth of our father David. So that's where we get the attestation of the authorship of the second psalm to David. He quotes, um, why do the Gentiles rage and the peoples devise futile things? The kings of the earth took their stand against the Lord and his Christ. Same stuff going on in Psalm 2. It's going on in Acts 4. Uh, the, The prophetic aspect of the word, the certainty that there will be rulers who will devise vain things and come against the Lord and his anointed is thus the reason that they quote that in that particular section. And of course, the point, like you see in in Psalm 2, is here in Acts 4 as well. It is futile for humans to try and throw off God's authority. Uh, As this passage unfolds now, we're going to have to unlock a few key words here. Um, Who's the anointed? As you did your thought before, you study now, who, who is the anointed? Now, it's not fair to think it must be Jesus because the, the A is capitalized, okay? Uh, or it, the me must be Jesus because the, it's capitalized, or the S and son must be Jesus because it's capitalized. There's no, they, they didn't use distinctions between capital letters and, and lowercase letters. We're going to have to unlock that and figure it out. In your sense, who, back in Psalm 2, who is the anointed? These rulers have come against Yahweh and his anointed. The king, uh, I take it. Now, it certainly will have far-reaching effects to the Lord, but the best way to unlock a passage is to ask, what did the original audience think? What was the author's intended meaning to the original recipients? I'm not certain they would have interpreted that to be, well, that must be the Christ. Certainly, that's who that is. You've got to allow the revelation to unfold. And we get our first really good look here at this word. I'm not going to show the thing, Gary. In uh, this idea of anointed, and really that's the way to, to understand uh, this term. It is the Hebrew word masak. Uh, the basic root of that word means to smear, to rub with something. Not just oil, but anything, but to have a dousing, if you will, uh, from another uh, liquid type of matter. And in this particular case, we have a passive adjective. That is, this is the one that has been smeared or poured upon, the anointed one, and that is the Hebrew word masiach. The only difference is the little I that's slotted in there. be like us putting an ED on a verb to make it past tense. They've got all kind of little jobbers that they do. And that becomes transliterated directly to Messiah. So you go from masiach in Hebrew to Messiah, the same sounds, the same letters, and that's called a transliteration, not a translation, uh, transliterated, where Masiach, this very now special word found throughout the Old Testament for one who has been anointed, we would say, or rubbed or doused with oil. Uh, in this particular case, we're going to see that is, it is a term used many times for Jewish kings, not Christ, it will be used of him ultimately, but remember, we're in the middle of the book. We walked into the middle of the movie. We have to allow the middle of the book to just stand on its own. And what you'll see, for example, David, even when Saul was attempting to kill him, about a nine to ten year period in which David was anointed king yet on the run, basically the the bulk of his 20s, he would have opportunity to kill Saul. There were some 
particularly comical moments where he's in the same cave with Saul at the same time, but instead of kill him, he'll like snip off a little bit of his, of his cord just to remind him, hey, dude, I was here, and I did not come against the Lord's anointed in reference to Saul. Because Saul had been anointed by Samuel, just like David, at around age 12 to 15, was anointed by Samuel, and he thus became a Masiach, one who had been anointed. And so what we'll see is that idea uh, will come over into, through the Greek language, to capture that word anoint is the Greek word Christos, obviously from which we would get uh, Christ. And so that idea of really anoint, meaning a Masiach, a a small m Messiah to us. But for my purposes, let's just make sure that we see that really what's going on here is that the, the king's who were properly aligned to David and thus were anointed, were described in Hebrew as Masiach. This one had been Masiach. And as a result of that, we we get that concept of Messiah sort of build. To the king of kings, the anointed, capital A anointed one, you had lots of small M Messiahs, lots of small S sons, uh, lots of small A anointed ones. Uh, The term anointed describing human kings will appear dozens of times in the Old Testament. That passage out of 1 Samuel was just one of them. Um, And so the the idea that comes forth from that is is, going to be important for us in just a moment. If you notice, there's some good parallels in the the second verse, uh, classic synonymous parallelism, just to show you a little structure. You got, you know, kings here, rulers here. What do the kings do? They take their stand. They counsel together, very classic. And if you were reading this like music, it, the, the Hebrew text would be just line and then the next line right under it, and you would see uh, that, that pentameter, that meter of, a, of the poem. You know, we might go, roses are red, violets are blue, how you doing, I love you. And just that da-da-da-da, da-da-da-da, da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da, as, as it builds to the point. And the, the same kind of thing exists uh, in this particular psalm and most places where parallelism is used. What are the, the rulers doing? They're tearing their fetters apart uh, and casting away their cords. What's a fetter, by the way? Shackles on the feet. Okay. If you didn't know Hebrew parallelism to the rescue, I don't know what it is, but it's in parallel to cords, so some kind of way to bind. Fetters were actually foot shackles, and the word foot is the root behind the word fetter, by the way. Uh, you can recognize the F and the T. So that I, you know, the deal where they're walking like that, that's a fetter. And this is uh, what is going on in the mind of those kings and rulers. And so they are the ones that are speaking in verse 3. The kings and the rulers are saying, we need to get the fetters of the, of the Lord off our feet. They're shackling us. They're, they're, they got us in bondage. We're not free to, to do what we want to do. His, his rulership is powerful over us, and we want to break free from his oversight and rule. So also you'll see that the pronouns will help you unlock that. This is, these are the rulers speaking. Let us, the rulers, tear their, that is the Lord and his anointed, fetters from us. And cast away there the Lord's and his anointed cords from us. Notice the plural pronouns on both sides. Rulers and counselors on one, the Lord and his anointed on the other. So those are the combatants being described here in this first section. Now the Lord is going to respond. uh, And he's going to state resolutely uh, that I have installed my king. And he will stay installed. It's a classic response that we might expect. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury. And this is what he will say. And this, in fact, this is what will be terrifying, is the power of his words. As for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. And the, the perfect tense of that word is, is powerful there. I have installed him, and he will remain installed. Thank you very much. Uh, and, of course, the response to this is just almost comical. But, but notice the, the structure here. In, in the first two verses, you've got the actions of the earthly kings. Okay? 
little, little tennis match going on here. And now, and then what they have to say. So what they're going to devise and be in an uproar and come up with a little speech. Let's tear their fetters away from us. That was their empty plan. Let's figure out a way to get out from under the control of the Lord and his anointed. Now, tennis match continues. To the action of the earthly kings, we see the reaction of the heavenly king, who also has a speech to give. Uh, As for me, I have installed my king. Uh, My my team is on the floor, if you're a, a follower of sports. I'll play these cards or something along those lines. Uh, my, my game is sufficient uh, to defeat yours. Now, what's going on here is really a close look at these particular words. How is the Lord describing? What's the first verb in English and, and in Hebrew as well, by the way, that describes the Lord? What's he doing? Sitting. What's going on in verses 1, 2, and 3? What, what's their actions? You think they're calm sitting around a, a little table? saying, you know, I think we really need to think about how we can get the Lord and his anointed and his rule to no longer be over us. <laughs> they were in an uproar. They were devising. It was it's almost this kind of wild scene over here. And then, court's in session, king's on the throne. That ain't a big enough deal for him to get up. He's just sitting, which is what kings do. That's where they rule from, Okay. So you see the, the, the wildness and the calmness, the, the, the apparent power and what power really looks like. And one of the few times you see, and obviously these are all what's called anthropomorphisms, uh, describing God how we would think or what we would do, he, he sort of chuckles. Uh, he, he laughs. It'd be like you know, a, a two-year-old trying to come up and say, I'm going to beat you up. <laughs> That's pretty cute, man. What are you doing? No, you're, you're really trying. Okay, I'm sorry. Here, here move, move over. He laughs. Now, it's a laughter of indignation. Uh, he scoffs. He goes on to see, as we see, he laughs and he, he sits, he laughs, he scoffs, and then he speaks, you know, kind of clears his throat, and then that's what becomes terrible and horrific to those that hear it. His rebellion that this rebellion has come against me is ridiculous. This is absurd. What am I doing having to mess with this? That kind of power of same kind of image we might have of, of just swatting a fly off of our dashboard. This is ridiculous. What are, you, what are you trying to do? Understand the complete futility to come against the Lord and his anointed. And then he will begin to speak. Marks a transition to the future. Okay, this is what you guys are doing. This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to react to what you're doing. I'm not even going to stand up, first of all. It's not that big a deal. And then I'm going to remind you that my anger will cause you to be terrified, and that's the cause and effect relationship. And now we get into a tough little section. But as for me, this is what I'm doing, basically. I will support my installed king. Um, This is what I've been doing from the beginning. Your plans have not thwarted me at all. I will remain sovereign and in control like I was when you were planning your conspiracy while my son was being coronated. And so that's the image that's going on here. No matter what, God has determined that his chosen king will reign over those scoffers, over those rulers, those counsel takers. And so the section that unfolds now is probably the toughest in the, in the second psalm because we get to identify who's who. And this is where we're going to look a bit about, you know, is it capital M, me, or capital S, son, and all that sort of stuff. And I'll lay that out for us. But in this section, in these three verses, he's going to say, I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. Someone will say that. We've got to figure out who's saying that. He said to me, thou art my son. Today I have begotten thee. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as thine inheritance and the very ends of the earth as thy possession." Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt shatter them like earthenware. I think the key thing that we have to unlock at first is who's speaking at the beginning of verse 7. And when you do a PowerPoint like this, you can kind of lose the context. So keep in mind from your Bible or your sheet all the stuff that's been going on. Here are my glasses. Um, And who's been talking, obviously, in verses 1, 2, and 3. The rulers are 
are speaking. Uh, and we, we want to we be removed from the fetters and cords of the Lord. And then the Lord responds and scoffs and uh, speaks to them and, and says he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury. And he will say in that speech, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. Now, there's a very powerful structural marker uh, in the Hebrew text, as well as most of your Bibles will make a little, mar- a little note here that we have a new little section, because I think we have a new speaker. But from the context, who does it appear to be speaking? We've, had, we've shown you the cast. You've got the Lord, you've got his anointed king, and you've got the, those coming against him. Who is speaking now? Whose turn is it? Okay, we've got the anointed king. How many think it's the, the, the human king? How many think it's the Lord continuing to speak? Because how we identify this guy will be important. I think the anointed king is the one who is speaking. And if you follow the thinking, it's going to go pretty much like this. The king is now going to step forth. Got the scoffers over here. The Lord has responded his way. And now it's the third person's time to speak in this little play. And he's going to basically say, I will surely tell you of the decree of the Lord. Let me tell you what God has established and what he's doing, what his decree is. And so this is the king speaking, and he's now going to quote the Lord. Okay? The Lord said to me, let me tell you of the decree of the Lord. This is what the decree is. He said to me, that is, the Lord said to me, the king, but we've got a capital M there. So it throws us off immediately. That can't be a human king because it's capitalized. And therefore, and so we have theology by punctuation, you know, and it's maddening because I don't think it should be capitalized. And I'm not the only guy that doesn't think it'd be capitalized. But it is very hard to stand in front of a room full of people and say, the Bible that I'm using, the Bible that I'm teaching from, the Bible that I'm putting up on the overhead, I don't think is correct in its English translation of this. It's clearly the Hebrew pronoun me, but who's the me? I think what we got here is the king speaking, God said to me, the human king, I have a t- thou art my son, and I think the, the S is going to be small there. You, I, you are my son, you are my king in that respect. I have begotten you, ask of me, the Lord saying, and I will give the nations as your inheritance." And you, in the very ends of the earth, is your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. But let's, let's unlock that a bit. Let's see how we uh, can focus in on those two little problem areas. Uh, who is the me? Is it going to be capitalized or, or lowercase? And who is the son? Is it uppercase or lowercase? And that's sort of the key to really understanding Psalm 2 and where most of the debate, as you might imagine, occurs in theological circles. Uh, Because we all know it's ultimately going to be used and describing the Lord. And so the S's and M's are going to be uppercase in the New Testament. But what would have been going on in the minds of those that received that for the first time? Could it be a prophecy? It could be. Royal Psalms very rarely are, but it could be a prophecy of the greater son, the greater me. But that would seem to exclude the Davidic king that was really being coronated, and the psalm wouldn't make any sense if it wasn't referring to him. I have a decree from the Lord, the Jewish king says. God has said, he has begotten me today, he has enthroned me, he will give me the inheritance of my enemies. And so let's see if we can take a look at that. So is it he said to me, capital M, or he said to me, lowercase, you are my son, capital S, or you are my son, lowercase s, in Psalm 2. So these are the two choices. Is it the Davidic king on the left or, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ on the right? And this is where you kind of have to pay your dues in study to really observe carefully and now, as we move into interpretation, really come up with what is probably the, the highest probability in understanding the text. Interpretation is not about possibility. It's about probability. What seems to be probably going on here is how I want you to think and come up with your own conclusion. I just kind of want to outline it a bit for you. Um, a lot of debate on it. Again, I've got some friends on either side. You've got the NIV uh, that says the me, the, the, the king is the human king, and, but the son is the Lord. 
and New American Standards got both of them being the Lord. King James got uh, the same as the NIV does. Amazingly, the New King James did not agree with the King James, got them both being the Lord. Uh, the RSV, a Revised Standard Version, has them both being humans, the human king, uh, the human son. Uh, the Net Bible has them both being humans, the lowercase m, lowercase son. And the ESV has the, has the lowercase me, but the uppercase son. So, you know, you're not going to find, whoever, wherever you want to go, you'll find an ally or an enemy, okay? So we, we're not going to be able to determine the will of God by vote uh, from the translators because they clearly don't agree really making my point that this is tough sledding. I'm not about to stand up and say I'm a better exegete than uh, the interpreters of these various Bibles, but somebody's wrong. I mean, it can't be both true at the same time. Theoretically, it could, but if you're going to have to assign a lowercase or uppercase, they're not agreeing. They've come to a theological conclusion based on who they think the characters are. Um, yeah. Isn't most prophecy, uh, when you look at prophecy, interpreted by the present and interpreted by the future? Yes. Well, actually, there's a move today that's reinterpreting the past by how it works out, which is what I think is going on here. I think because this worked out to be Jesus Christ, uppercase M, uppercase S, the editors have gone back and said, that's who that was in that passage. Necessarily mean that. I mean, you look at some of the other prophetic books. You look at the Book of Daniel. Sure. The prophecy that is fulfilled within that time. Oh yes. And then that will still be uh, fulfilled as well. That's why I made the little joke. It 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 both could be true. The the greater probability at the coronation of a king, though, would have been, I think, in reference to the if you were literally at the coronation. I don't think that sentence makes any sense unless you're talking about a human king. They don't, there does not seem to be the doctrine of Messiah that has progressed enough to where they would have seen that that would be a reference to Messiah. That word is actually just kind of coming into play in Samuel and around David's time uh, to talk about kings, obviously, because kings are on the scene. But yes, the potentiality is there. And I'm actually arguing that both are true, that I think in the original context in Psalm 2, it's going to be lowercase that will end up morphing into the king of kings, the Lord Jesus Christ, showing the power of the scripture and how it works. So I think that you're going to have this idea that this is the Davidic king speaking, that all Davidic kings, therefore, were considered his sons in that sense, that special relationship that existed between God and his king. Again, that type of governance is unique to us, that God is ruling through a man. Now, they were priests and they were all these other guys around, but he was the predominant conduit through which God's will was dispensed on earth and that close relationship that existed between he and his king. Second Samuel, of course, uh, the Davidic covenant, when he commits iniquity, uh, I will break him with a rod of iron, but he will uh, be blessed and his throne will be established forever, clearly referring to a human king. You'd never have anyone assigned Second Samuel 7 to Jesus Christ because it says when he commits iniquity. And so the humanness, all I'm trying to bring into it is the humanness of those characters literally alive during this time being coronated and what it would have meant to them. And then, and really only then, can we see how Revelation progresses. And what's going on a lot is that a lot of New Testament interpreters are going back and saying, well, because this fulfilled this way, here's a good example. Could you read Genesis 3 and say, uh, the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent are going to be in this great debate and this great battle and conclude right then and there that God and Satan or Christ and Satan are going to be the combatants. You just don't know that yet. All they're saying is, hey, there's a fight next Saturday. And then you find out who are the combatants and you find out what each one looks like. The Bible has to unfold and reveal itself. And unfortunately, we pick it up and read it, start reading it about nine-tenths of the way through, completely jettisoning all the foundation, all the backgrounds, all the types, all the antitypes, all the illusions in which these New Testament truths are built. And you really fail to see the beauty with which God writes and how he reveals himself, albeit admittedly painstakingly. It takes a while to get there, but that's how he's chosen to do it. And so I, I think it's always a good little method like we've gone through tonight just to say, what would that original audience have thought? 
What was going on in the minds of a king and those in the Levitical choir that were watching this coronation? Whether it be the coronation in Psalm 2, in Psalm 45, Psalm 110, others as well. Uh, also, the, the passages in, in Acts in 13, Acts 13 and Hebrews 1 will have to be considered because clearly this psalm then is assigned to the person of Jesus Christ. So I think you've got a small K at the, in, in Psalm 2 with the potentiality as the revelation progresses for the king of kings to be uh, the, the ultimate fulfillment. Wayne. Were you saying those other Psalms, 45 and 110, I think you said, yeah. would, those, would those be along the same lines then? Or? Yeah, they're royal psalms. They're coronation-type psalms. But would they be speaking to the human kings and the kings as opposed to I think so. Yeah, no, I'm not saying it's not messianic. It is, pot- it is potentiality messianic, but it's, it, in its potential it's messianic, but it, it would, you would have to also include the human king. Isaiah 7. There was a real virgin who really had a baby in Isaiah. Okay? It, it, that, that prophecy got fulfilled within two years of that prophecy being admitted, yet its greater fulfillment is in Jesus Christ. It's Forrest Gump. Both are happening at the same time. Okay, this is, and where we're at in interpretation is that doesn't matter. I just want to talk about this. And that's, in my opinion, not good work in the scripture of, of realizing what did God reveal and at that time and what would they have thought for a thousand years before Christ was revealed as the ultimate fulfillment? Would Psalm 2 have had no validity then? And, and that's kind of how I think it through a bit. Um, we, we see now that the king in this, la- in this little section, he, he says, he says I, I have been told by my Lord that my kingship will be protected and God has assigned for me the inheritance of the nation. And you'll see throughout the kings, throughout Samuel, throughout Chronicles, kings appealing to God's care and protection of them, the covenant that he has cut with them through the Davidic covenant, and terms like we see in Psalm 2, in which he has guaranteed um, the ability to defeat enemies. Now, no Jewish king completed all these things described here. Not, not every, David didn't rule the whole earth. The king of kings will. But the fact that God was with the Jewish king, the literal human king, and of course, more important to us in the long run, and he is with his son, and it is his decree that is upon the Son of God as well, the Lord Jesus Christ. And now notice the very powerful words that the psalmist will use to wrap this little thing up. He tells them in in a series of imperatives. He talks to those same kings that were earlier in verses 1, 2, and 3. He says, I want you to show discernment. Take warning. Worship the Lord, literally to bow down. Worship Yahweh, the name of God woven throughout this little psalm with reverence. Rejoice with trembling. It's not the normal word for fear, but it's a synonym for our our word for fear elsewhere. Do homage. That's the hardest one to translate because it literally means kiss. Kiss the sun. And you'll see that in in, uh, Sarah Malone and I were talking about this, and she spent a lot of time overseas. Uh, In a Turkish context, it's not unusual at all to to, to do something like that and then kiss the hand of of the one that you want to show respect to. Uh, it was certainly gentlemanly, uh, I guess, back in the day to, to very discreetly kiss the hand of the young woman to show that you respect and show homage. I'm not advocating this, but the best picture of this that we have today in religious circles is the, the pontiff, the king will, or the pope will hold out his hand and people will kiss his hand. That, that's uh, culturalist. It's where all cultures have used the kiss in that way to show respect or homage some kind of submission or subservience to that. Uh, but it literally reads, kiss the sun. Uh, and the image, of course, is uh, kiss the one who is in, in charge and show him homage. Lest he be angry with you and perish and you perish in the way, for his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all those who take refuge in him. Remember, we're in a section that began with wisdom, Psalm 1, and now we're going to see that it is wise for people to find refuge from God's wrath by submitting to his king. Both the human king, if you're living in the time of a, of a king, uh, and, and in times of great danger and great spiritual decline, that was still the principle that existed. And one of the things that happened to Israel is that they did not kiss the sun. 
They did not give homage to the small M, Masiach, the one who was God's anointed uh, and would often uh, come against them. And, of course, the great uh, battles against the Lord Jesus Christ found throughout the Scripture uh, is not uh, unconnected at all. Both are true. Um, If you notice, as I want to end here, notice this little section of two two little psalms. How does Psalm 1-1 begin? What's the first little phrase? found in Psalm 1-1. How blessed is the man. Hebrew word asher, like the sun in Genesis 29 and 30. How does Psalm 2-10 begin? Same thing. How blessed is the man. And Psalm 2-10 says what? Oh, 2 I'm sorry, yeah. It ends. How blessed. I only mess that up twice. You know, there's... <laughs> There's probably four other ways I could have messed that up. I apologize. (laughs) The beauty of PowerPoint. After I save it, uh, you will have no more. No, 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 please, please, you're embarrassing me. Okay. Play the tape back. Hey, how does Psalm 1-1 begin? How does Psalm 2-12 end? It's called, what's that, what kind of figure is that called? Like a parenthesis. It's called an inclusio. Those are like the brackets, the walls, and everything in between is the main point. That this is the blessed life. This is what it looks like. It is a life that, is, that, that seeks wisdom, Psalm 1. Firmly planted guy, delights in the Lord. It is wise to submit to the authority of Messiah because God has declared that he will put down all rebellion and rule the world. It's a simple psalm. It simply reminds us of, of the team on which we are on, in which uh, our, our Lord is, in fact, the dominant ruler who can take on all comers, who sits and laughs at times where we're uh, frustrated and and confused. The Lord is so sovereign, so in control, he can sit and laugh and scoff at those that are attempting to come against him and tear across, tear apart the fetters that they feel from him. That's the beauty of Psalm 1 and 2 together, and that's why I wanted to spend that time bringing those two out for us these last couple of weeks. We'll come back next in two weeks and take a look at probably the most common type of psalm found in the Psalter, a lament psalm. That's the type of psalm that allows us to uh, complain a bit and then heal ourselves. But it's also revealing of how God allows the full expression of mankind uh, in what we're fully experiencing. Let me pray for us and we can uh, be dismissed. Lord, thanks so much for the privilege to think about these things, to, uh, to ponder them, to, um, uh, to wrestle a bit with what is the correct way to understand uh, the Word of God at this particular, this particular psalm. Help us, Lord. Um, understand it in its original context and certainly how it's used throughout the scripture. For each one here, Lord, and those that couldn't be with us this week, I ask you to bless them and give them insight into the word of God as we study together the beautiful, delightful word of God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.